and welcome to the EPC podcast, where we delve deeper into EU affairs and connect the dots between politics, policies, and people. My name is Rebecca Kastermans, and I'm the head of communications at the European Policy Center. It has been a busy last few days for geopolitics in Europe. No less than five major international summits happened in less than a week. In Brussels, NATO leaders came together to renew the transatlantic relationship after four fraught years under former US President Trump and discussed how to prepare the organization for the future. In this episode, we take a closer look at the outcome of the NATO summit and the implications for EU-NATO cooperation and the transatlantic relationship and how the alliance plans to deal with Russia and China. We also review NATO's plans to help the fight against climate change. I'm joined by Jamie Shea, Professor of Strategy and Security at the University of Exeter, former Deputy Assistant Secretary General for Emerging Security Challenges at NATO and Senior Advisor to the EPC, Katarina Kertisova, Policy Fellow at the European Leadership Network and NATO 2030 Young Leader, and Mihai Sebastian Chihaya, policy analyst in the Europe in the World program at the European Policy Center. Now, Jamie, earlier this month, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said Russia and China are leading an authoritarian pushback against the rule-based international order and uh, that their increased cooperation poses a threat to multilateralism. And U.S. President Biden has also stressed, both in the run-up to his European trip and during, uh, the importance of democracy standing together and defending and improving democracy and the rule-based order worldwide. Are we seeing the beginnings of a new sort of ideological Cold War, uh, the emergence uh, or return of a bipolar world order, the forces of democracy versus authoritarianism? Well, Rebecca, first and foremost, thanks very much for inviting me to participate in today's uh, podcast. Pleasure to be here. Uh, At at first sight, you might think so, right? Uh, We've just seen Joe Biden at the G7 in Cornwall and uh, in Brussels over the last couple of days frame the narrative of the 21st century as the struggle between democracy and authoritarianism. And he's cast that very much in the terms of values, in terms of the technology competition, the military competition, uh, and of course, competing for the attention uh, and the uh, support of the developing countries, the countries in between in Africa, in Southwest Asia, in the Middle East. So at first sight, yes, it does look that we might be going back to that great sort of ideological struggle that we call the Cold War. But I do think there are very substantial differences. Number one, interdependence. We didn't have that during the Cold War. The Soviet Union represented only 1% of world trade uh, at most. And now, of course, we have China investing $1 trillion in American treasuries. We have the EU trading to the tune of 560 billion euros with China uh, every year. Uh, So this degree of economic interdependence, which of course is the result of globalization, uh, limits uh, the ability of either side to go too far down the road towards confrontation. Secondly, we share sort of global challenges. Everybody's been saying on the one hand, yes, we need to look seriously about the challenge from China. But in the next sentence, you hear them say, ah, yes, but 
that we need China on climate change, otherwise not a hope in managing it. We've seen the cruciality of Chinese cooperation uh, in understanding uh, COVID-19 and the pathogens uh, and dealing with that health crisis. We need China's cooperation as the NATO forces leave Afghanistan. Uh, China cooperated in dealing with piracy. So we're brought together by the fact that there are certain things that are even greater than we are uh, as well. Finally, uh, my sense is that we are now uh, in an age where we are working to prevent uh, a Cold War emerging in the future. And that's really going to be the task of the next few years, because, yes, on the one hand, it does mean uh, rebuilding the West uh, economically in technology terms as a viable alternative model. Uh, but it also means persuading China, uh, Russia, I think, is more difficult, but persuading China that the path to confrontation is really not its, in its interest. I mean, just and I'll finish on this, Rebecca. Um, when President Xi gave his speech the other day, it was interesting to see that he was telling his sort of spokespeople to tone it down, uh, all of this hostile wolf warrior rhetoric against the West, because people have been obviously pointing out to him that you know, this is only darkening China's image and provoking a reaction. It's not so. Serving China's interests in the way that the peaceful rise, the trading relationships did just a couple of years ago. So uh, we could have a Cold War. Yes, it's true, although history never quite repeats itself. But but I think the task these days is to recognise that we neither side has any interest in going that way, uh, but coming up with the policies that uh, prevent it from happening. How does the renewed transatlantic relationship fit into this? Do EU leaders buy into President Biden's vision of defending democracy together? Well, you, you've had uh, two two uh, sort of tests tests of your question, both at the G7 over the weekend in Cornwall, and then uh, the NATO summit uh, uh, and the EU uh, summits, which have taken place in, in in Brussels. And within a couple of days, uh, I think the answer from Beijing's perspective is yes. You know, the West is really coming together uh, on China. You've had an agreed uh, G7 communique. You've had an agreed NATO communique, which very much go along the same lines of describing. China not as an enemy or an adversary, uh, different from Russia, but as a strategic challenge and pointing to the same things that alarm Western countries, whether in Europe or North America, uh, the human rights abuses, the bullying of Taiwan, the disinformation campaigns and cyber attacks, and China's uh, rapid and very non-transparent military modernization program. So I think China is now seeing that, yes, the West is much more united now in recognizing the dark side of China's rise and being prepared to push back. And I have to say that, of course, NATO, having described the problem, still needs to put the flesh on the bones and describe exactly how it's going to deal with it in terms of you know, the military side, the, the supply chains, the direct foreign investment uh, and all of those uh, issues. But also NATO said yesterday that it needs to engage China. And I totally agree that we can't deal with China if we don't talk to China and just talk about China. Um, so to my mind, I think, yes, uh, Beijing has received a warning sign that the West is now taking it seriously and organizing. But you also heard yesterday still that people want to cooperate with it, want to keep the channels of communication open. And I think, frankly, last point, Biden knows very well that he's never going to get you know, the Canadians and the, America, uh, the Europeans and others to sign up for a kind of, you know, with us or against us axis of evil, you know, 
us or them kind of approach to China, that's not going to build a coalition. It has to be built around a much more balanced policy. Yes, criticism. Yes, pushback. Yes, competition. But but also a cooperation uh, wherever uh, uh, possible. The trick, of course, over the next couple of months with you know, such a, a complicated balanced policy is going to be to get our ducks in a row and make sure that we don't trip ourselves up. How important is is that EU-US relationship also for the functioning of NATO? I think it's extremely important in a number of ways. Uh, first of all, uh, of course, you know, on China, China is now the EU's largest trading partner. And so the US is never going to get a coherent Western policy vis-a-vis uh, -vis China if the EU is uh, not fully on board. And I think Biden understands that. Secondly, I think Biden does understand, uh, like many EU leaders, that we are not going to out-confront China. The only way to be successful is to out-compete, which means that we have to lead, uh, uh, lift the trade barriers uh, between the US and the EU, the tariffs, you know, the disputes on Airbus on aluminium, on steel, on data, on tax. Biden and the EU have now agreed to finally, you know, call a halt to the dispute over aircraft subsidies, Boeing Airbus. We need to go a lot further and revitalize some of these ideas for a transatlantic trade pact that I am mindful of protectionism. Third uh, answer to your very good question, Rebecca, is that, you know, the U.S. is pivoting to the Asia Pacific. Biden this week, uh, though he said a lot of very nice things about NATO, which everybody wanted to hear, but he didn't offer new tanks or new American divisions or new American aircraft in, in, in Europe. Uh, it, it's clear if you read the U.S. Uh, Pentagon budget that all of the new weapons, the new ships, the new aircraft are going off to the Asia Pacific. So I, I think President Macron is fully right, uh, even if sometimes he's a bit of a lone voice when he makes the case for European strategic autonomy, not against the US, not against NATO, but clearly recognizing the fact that you know, the Europeans uh, have got to fill most of the capability gaps in NATO now, not the Americans. And the Europeans, of course, have got to deal with situations in Africa, in Mali, uh, which could be a threat uh, to the European uh, continent. What we need to do during the Biden administration is try to convince Washington to see that as a plus of uh, for them and for NATO and to encourage it rather than continue to see it as some kind of unnecessary duplication of effort or a threat to NATO. Uh, we didn't quite get that American commitment at this summit from Biden, but we've still got three years and we have to renew those efforts. Uh, Mihai, Jamie already alluded to this um, when he was saying that um, not all NATO allies um, necessarily see eye to eye on China. But in the future, do you see this becoming a potential problem? Uh, the fact that the EU and the US notably don't really see China in the same way and that the US sees it as, as more of a serious threat and the EU sees it, um, as Jamie said, more in a different way as a competitor, but also as a, as a rival, but also as a partner. Could this divergence on China pose a potential problem in the future of NATO? Well, firstly, maybe it's important to point out that uh, it's the first time that China is uh, mentioned at length in a NATO communique. I think there was also a mention in 2019, but a very, very short mention. So it's important that China is on the table of discussion. Also, uh, NATO Secretary General has um, 
as mentioned that China is um, coming closer to us. We see China in Africa. We see China involved in uh, critical infrastructure projects in uh, southeastern Europe. We also see China involved in exercises together with Russia in North Atlantic waters. So it's, China is coming uh, closer to us, to use the, the words of the Secretary General. But at the same time, there are also some discussions between NATO allies regarding China. Of course, we see um, the United States trying to put um, to designate China as a threat, to put it there on top of the agenda of NATO together with Russia. But on the European side, there are like also different feelings about uh, China. Some uh, some European allies don't know exactly how to see China yet. They see it as a competitor, but not as a threat yet. Others, uh, other allies are afraid that uh, putting China there on the table of, uh, of threats will mean less resources for dealing with Russia. And some other member states, NATO allies, think about their trade relations with China. So altogether, I think NATO needs to, to find a, a right balance. And at this, uh, at this summit, I think they found it as reflected in the, in the words in the communique that you just uh, mentioned. They see, of course, um, China's ambitious and behavior presents systemic challenges, but also at the, at the same time, NATO maintains a constructive dialogue with China where possible. So I think they found this balance at this point. I think probably in the next uh, year or so, towards the next NATO summit, there will be more clarity on the NATO side on how to, to approach uh, China. Do you agree with that assessment, Jamie? Uh, yes, I, I, I do. I think I expressed it very, very accurately and very eloquently. Um, I'd say just three things very briefly to just hopefully compliment what he said. I think, you know, China is a multifaceted beast, uh, economically powerful, military, uh, you know, soft diplomacy, influence, role in the United Nations and multinational uh, uh, agencies. Uh, and uh, obviously, you can't have one organization like NATO coming along and saying, we're going to deal with the lot. That, that's simply not going to work. NATO would be overloaded, and in many respects, it doesn't have the competence. So, as Mihai suggested, I think NATO's focus is very much going to be on Chinese influence uh, in Europe and the neighbourhood. Uh, what Mihai rightly said is China coming to us rather than NATO going to China. Um, there will be some Europeans. Uh, you see this with the UK at the moment, with the Queen Elizabeth aircraft carrier task force going off to the China South China Sea, uh, France, Germany, Belgium, the Netherlands. You you have some European countries that still have an aspiration to have some kind of you know, on-again, off-again military presence uh, in uh, uh, the Indo-Pacific. Uh, and if that becomes more of a trend, then certainly NATO may have to do some balancing between sort of forces uh, in the Indo-Pacific and forces required for deterrence and exercises and presence uh, in Europe. But what I think you're going to see is NATO much more, you know, trying to set standards for technology, you know, Huawei, 5G, looking Looking at Chinese direct foreign investment, looking at you know Chinese role, uh, the Chinese role in what NATO calls hybrid warfare, uh, uh, is it sort of copying the Russian playbook? Is is it uh, uh, different from that point of view? And, and being used as a kind of hub for exchanging intelligence, you know, trying to come to a common view, trying to come to common assessment. So I think that that's probably where you're going to see the effort immediately, keeping an eye on China rather than doing anything concrete about. It in the short term. I think the second thing is that, you know, the alliance be 
before the summit was talking about sort of getting together with its partners in the Asia Pacific region, you know, Australia, Japan, South Korea, the people who turned up at the G7 summit to try to form a common view. There, uh, in Brussels, frankly, there wasn't a lot about this. There was a lot about China, but it was far less about how NATO is going to work with Australia or South Korea or Japan and whether those countries would be interested in working with NATO because they have their sensitivities about China as well. And then the third thing uh, is, you know, NATO says we need a dialogue with China. Very interesting. But how's it going to get it started? You know, you know what's it going to be like? Is it going to be a kind of military hotline or, you know, NATO officials going off to Beijing to give lectures at staff colleges? Will they be a NATO China council? How's NATO actually going to sit down with China? Uh, and again, will the Chinese be interested in doing that? So uh, the you know, NATO is going to start work on a new strategic concept now. And I think you know, just putting the flesh on the bones of how it goes from describing China, as I said earlier, to doing something concrete about it, is going to be a very interesting discussion to watch. Uh, turning now from China to Russia, which, as Jamie mentioned, is still considered to be the primary threat. Uh, it's mentioned in the communique more than 60 times. Uh, have NATO leaders agreed on a, a common assessment, vision, strategy in dealing with Russia? And um, will that be enough? Uh, I'd say that NATO and NATO members uh, do have a common vision of a good relationship with Russia. Uh, they are open to cooperation uh, with a Russia that stands by the international commitments, uh, one that complies with international law and its international obligations and responsibilities and behaves in a manner uh, that is consistent with the NATO-Russia founding act. Uh, there's also a common assessment of how Russia has dealt with Georgia, Ukraine, that Russia has intensified its hybrid activities, whether in the cyber or information domains, and that it has adopted a more assertive military posture. So NATO clearly sees Russia as a major challenge. Uh, when it comes to strategy, uh, I think that NATO could benefit uh, from a strategy that is long-term and steadfast. Uh, but this process will be difficult. Uh, in the end of the day, NATO is a sum of its members, and each of them has a unique uh, geographical, historical, and economic relationship with Russia. And this complicates common dealings. Uh, the current strategy or uh, approach is based on stronger deterrence and defense on the one hand, uh, while remaining open to meaningful dialogue on the other. And this dual track approach was reaffirmed at the summit this week. Uh, in reality, however, uh, this dialogue strength is weak and the NATO-Russia Council has not met since 2019. Uh, meaningful military-to-military -military dialogue in the first instance to reduce risk is absolutely essential and this is what we at the European Leadership Network have been encouraging. When you have lots of military forces in close proximity there is a risk um, and uh, the Brussels communique recognizes uh, the need to avoid misunderstanding, miscalculation and unintended escalation uh, and states that NATO is committed uh, to making use of the existing military lines of communication and to promote predictability and transparency and calls on Russia uh, to do so as well. Uh, Katarina, maybe to follow up on that, how, how do you see EU-NATO cooperation um, improving in order to deal with Russia? Um, I think that 
uh, if we want to influence Russia to agree or to come back to international rules and norms, uh, then all tools of national power must be used, uh, including, you know, economics and trade. And this requires a close alignment between NATO and EU foreign policy. And it is evident that NATO is keen for that to happen uh, and work with the EU uh, to take a common approach forward. Now, Mihai, in the past decade, Russia has been shoring up its military presence all along its borders, most notably in the Arctic, Black Sea region, even in the Mediterranean. Can you or do you see NATO playing a greater role in any of these areas or the EU? Well, to to answer your question, yes, uh, NATO can do a lot more. But maybe first we should look a little bit more into these uh, specific areas. And I'll start with the with the Black Sea region, which is uh, close to, to to me personally as well. There are a couple of important aspects that we need to look at when discussing about uh, about the Black Sea. We've seen in the past years since the Russia's annexations of Crimea, we've seen an increasing Russian presence in the in the Black Sea. We've seen a couple of uh, incidents as well, such as the 2018 seizing of some Ukrainian warships by uh, by Russia. We've seen uh, recently, a couple of months ago, that Russia closed some part of the um, of the Black Sea to foreign uh, foreign vessels. So, so altogether, we see this increased presence that you talked about. Uh, secondly, when we look at the NATO allies in the in the region, I'll stop at at, at Romania. Romania has been very vocal in the past uh, six, seven years about the importance of the the Black Sea region, and we've seen this reflected at the at the level of NATO, at the level of NATO summits, in the communiques, in Wales, in Warsaw. And also more more recently, also Romania has tried to put this uh, on the table of discussion for the EU as well, also during its uh, EU presidency in 2019. And altogether, Romania called for incre increased uh, NATO, NATO presence. At the same time, the, the Black Sea region is also important from an energy standpoint. There are some uh, some gas resources there that the countries are trying to look into to try to transform them into something concrete in the in the in the Black Sea region. And also, there is a lot of um, other potential for renewable e energy. So altogether, the Black Sea is very is essential. Now, what did NATO do in the past uh, five, six, seven years in this? We've seen, of course, uh, increased awareness. NATO has talked a lot more about uh, the Black Sea region, also as a result of uh, the allies lobbying for discussing the Black Sea region there. We've also uh, seen uh, more NATO ships transiting the Black Sea region. We've also seen an increased role of Romania there. We've seen more exercise and probably will continue to see more exercise. We've seen a tailored for presence for NATO there. Now, going back to question what NATO can do more. There are a couple of things that NATO can do more and I think the, the NATO allies there and partners are continuing to, to put this on the table. So firstly, the NATO could support more the, the allies in the region to, to develop military capabilities, maritime capabilities. These are of course very expensive, so they, they need support. Also, they should uh, think of developing these um, capabilities as joint, joint capabilities that can be used by more NATO members, which will decrease probably the, um, the, the altogether cost of these, uh, these equipment. Then, of course, there is closer cooperation with uh, Georgia and Ukraine that is also re reflected in the um, current communique. Then, of course, another avenue could be to develop a Black Sea strategy. Probably this might happen at some point, but I, I know that uh, Romania is also advancing uh, discussion on this topic and maybe also to increase this tailored forward uh, forward presence in the region. Another new development coming out of the summit and maybe something 
that hasn't been picked up a lot by, by the media is the explicit recognition of climate change and its impact on security. Uh, the communique mentioned that climate change is a threat multiplier that impacts allied security. Uh, the Allies already endorsed NATO's climate change and security agenda um, earlier this year in March, and at the summit, leaders agreed on an action plan to implement that. Katarina, can you tell us what the priorities are of this action plan and what have leaders actually concretely agreed to? So, as you have rightly pointed out, uh, yesterday was was a good day for all climate and NATO watchers and enthusiasts. I think it depends on the sort of media you're reading, uh, but the ones I have seen have 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 been trying to to um, show that NATO is stepping up its uh, ambition and activities with regard to addressing the security implications of climate change. So, um, NATO, as you have said. Um, recognized that climate change is a threat multiplier that impacts NATO's security. And uh, the communique also states that NATO will try to become the leading international organization when it comes to understanding and adapting to the impact of climate change on security. Um, the climate action plan that was agreed um, and which in principle will implement the agenda that was endorsed in March uh, focuses on uh, four concrete areas, uh, namely awareness, adaptation, mitigation, and outreach efforts. And I'd like to outline some concrete areas of action uh, that were mentioned. For example, to increase its awareness of the impact of climate change and security, NATO will produce uh, an annual assessment of climate impacts on NATO operations. So how does climate change affect what NATO is trying to do? Uh, to accelerate its adaptation, uh, NATO will incorporate climate change consideration in all it does, from procurement to planning and capability development to training and exercises. And on the mitigation side, um, NATO will develop a methodology to help allies measure their military emissions. So at this moment, we don't really know what the military emissions are, and even those countries that measure them don't necessarily report them. Uh, so, so this is a step in the right direction, which can eventually lead to voluntary emissions targets. Uh, NATO leaders have also invited the Secretary General to formulate a realistic target and assess how feasible it will be for allied militaries to reach net zero by 2050. And I think another positive development, you know, in addition to the communique language and the Climate Action Plan is that Canada proposed to establish and host a new NATO Center of Excellence on climate and security. When going through the communique, there seemed to be, to me, a larger emphasis on mitigating the impact of NATO military operations on climate and not so much concrete on how climate affects security. So will the previously mentioned um, assessment reports um, also look ahead? Will they function to make predictions on how climate change can trigger or worsen future conflicts NATO might be uh, involved in? Our soldiers have to operate in increasingly warmer and colder climates, and our military installations are at risk from sea level rise, coastal erosion, and extreme weather events. Uh, but this is just one part of the problem. Extreme weather events uh, can also lead to drought, famine, loss of livelihood, and can increase conflict and migration potential in 
our neighborhood and areas where NATO's operations and trainings take place. Uh, so these uh, annual climate security impact assessments will apply to both NATO's military operations and to its strategic environment. Uh, the better NATO understands the underlying dynamics, uh, the more it can anticipate future risks and be prepared to respond in time. Now, um, to round things up, um, besides reconfirming the transatlantic ties, uh, the summit was about preparing for the future. So my final question to you is, is NATO ready for 2030? Well, I think uh, we see a basis of what you might call a new transatlantic bargain emerging from this summit. On the one hand, you know, here you have Joe Biden, unlike Donald Trump, coming in, calling NATO uh, a sacred duty, uh, repledging the United States unconditionally to collective defense, you know, not making it conditional on buying American uh, missiles or aircraft or uh, meeting the 2% uh, GDP target for defense spending, um, uh, consulting the allies and saying America is back. That's obviously music to the ears of the uh, allies. And despite the emphasis on China, uh, as uh, my colleagues rightly pointed out, you know, Russia still gets a much bigger mention. And so those Eastern Europeans who might be worried that you know NATO was turning into a global alliance and forgetting its immediate regional collective defense purpose, I think they will be reassured. On the other hand, two things. Number one, Biden has made it clear that he's not trying to come back to the NATO pre-Trump. He's looking for a new NATO. And you know many of the things that we've been talking about uh, are the new directions where the Americans want NATO to go. You know, China uh, looking more at climate change, which uh, Katerina uh, very well described, you know, dealing more with cyber, uh, making space an operational domain, uh, particularly linking space to the Article 5 collective uh, defense dealing more with disruptive technologies uh, and, of course, being more global in, in its outlook. So to my mind, uh, the real challenge for the future is going to be to handle the old NATO, which is still there. You know, Russia is still there. Collective defense is still there. Uh, the neighborhood problems in the Balkans are still there, while bolting onto the alliance, this new, much more global agenda. Now, the Canadian Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, said yesterday, yep, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. And Technically, he's right, of course, but it's going to mean, obviously, uh, a lot more resources for NATO, a lot more political investment in NATO on both sides of the Atlantic, uh, if this is really going to uh, happen. Uh, you know, as we know from the G7, it's easy to put up these very ambitious targets and, you know, sign the declarations and talk the talk. It's another thing the next Monday to come up with the, the money and the personnel uh, to make it all happen. So we'll have to wait and see. That said, I think at the back of everybody's mind, despite the wonderfully good mood music yesterday, was, of course, the, the thought, well, you know, we have experienced uh, uh, Donald Trump once. Uh, he's not gone away. Uh, you know, Joe Biden has got a very sort of slender majority in the Congress, uh, midterm elections soon, the presidential elections now in just three years time. Uh, you know, are we going to see America go back to the sort of nationalism of Trump? Uh, how much trust can we have in this new transatlantic relationship? I mean, the final comment here, Rebecca, is I did hear President Macron uh, yet again at the NATO summit yesterday continue to make the case uh, for European strategic autonomy, for the Europeans to stand on their own two feet as the best insurance policy against all of the uncertainties. If Biden 
uh, and his line stays. European strategic autonomy is good in terms of sharing the burdens with the United States. If Biden is a flash in the pan, the last uh, American European president, and we go back to nationalism, then European strategic autonomy is a good insurance policy to allow Europe to protect itself better uh, in a far more uncertain world. Well, I think it's uh, it's getting there. I, I think the, the the summit yesterday gave gave the feeling of a of a summit focused on on rebuilding trust, on rebuilding transatlantic relations, then to a return of the U.S. of so-called return of the U.S. a commitment of the U.S. to to NATO. When looking at the communique, we also see the the wording reiterate, reaffirm, reaffirm commitment, which shows uh, continuity which shows that uh, the NATO continues to be the most important alliance, shows that NATO is uh, is adapting. At the same time, it also gave the, the, the feeling that important decisions are still to come, probably in the in the next years towards the the summit nato also shows it's it's adapting to the um, to the to the challenges so nato is getting there but there are still many issues to to consider one being agreeing which are the most important threats we still see some different opinions of, uh, among the allies and these should be mended of course in the in the future so i think all in all it's on the path to to get there katarina you have the final word I think that the summit confirmed that we need a more holistic understanding of what constitutes security today. Uh, NATO is open to broadening its agenda to include issues such as climate change, uh, pandemics and emerging technologies. Uh, but uh, this communique and the 2030 reflection process that preceded it is just the first step on the road. Uh, we still need to turn this ambition into action. Thank you very much to Jamie, Katarina and Mihai for their insights. Our Europe and the World team will continue to follow all things security and foreign policy at the EPC. You can find more information on our website, epc.eu. Tune in next time. Until then, over and out.